Sunda Islands, known as Mambata. As you've all read in your briefing books, on day 103, a typhoon washed up the remnants of an Indonesian fishing boat, including basic supplies and a survival raft. On day 108, the remaining six survivors, including Miss Austin's baby, which she gave birth to on the island of Mambata, used this raft to journey here, an island called Sumba. Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost. For each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be covering episode 412 entitled There's No Place Like Home, Part 1. This is the 84th episode of the series and there are 37 to go. And before we jump into the summary for this episode, some feedback on last week's episode, that being Cabin Fever feedback sent to me on twitter by mighty tim and he has a slight difference uh, of opinions concerning my uh my rather harsh judgment of Locke last week and here's what tim has to say john Locke was only chosen and special because of Locke himself tim certainly agrees with the idea that Locke is essentially a john the baptist type similar to the big guy but is not him to use my words In response to that, Tim says, yes, agreed. But regarding the Richard question, Richard was hoping John would pick the compass. See Jughead, episode 503. Tim goes on to say, it's also interesting to note that Richard kept viewing Locke as special due to Jack's recommendation in the season five finale. Uh, And, you know, I think that Tim certainly makes a good point. As I've said many times before, uh, it's strange doing this podcast, the memory of uh, seasons ahead of where the podcast is at, they, the memory of those seems to fade more and more uh, the closer I get to them. It's this very weird uh, memory thing. Uh, it, so, I mean, I'll admit my, my memory of season five certainly is a bit hazy, having done the, uh, the 80-some-odd episodes uh, prior to that season. So certainly an excellent point there from Tim, uh, really some great thoughtful stuff. Uh, I'll just mention as well, he also adds that uh, he liked Smokey's attitude towards Locke in the cabin. He found it funny, and he adds, uh, where did it go? He said that it is clearly Smokey that is Christian, because quote-unquote Christian is wearing shoes. Um, Jacob and the others never wear shoes, Tim uh, observes, certainly agreeing there with my notion that uh it was Christian, uh, pardon me, that it was Smokey in the cabin and not some sort of uh, form of Christian. Anyhow, so thank you very much, Tim. Uh, as uh, you can hear at the end of the podcast, if you'd like to send me a message on Twitter, I am looking back lost. And uh, with that, let's now get into the summary for this episode, the beginning of our three-part season finale, this being No Place Like Home, part one. In flash forwards, we are in January 2005 and the Oceanic Six... Jack, Kate, Saeed, Son, Hurley, and uh, uh, Aaron arrive in Honolulu, where Hurley and Son are reunited with their parents, Jack with his mother, and Saeed with his girlfriend, Nadia. In the ensuing media circus, a press conference is held where they lie about everything that has happened on the island, going as far as saying that they are the only living survivors of the plane crash. Sometime later, Hurley's dad gives Hurley his newly rebuilt 1970s Camaro at a surprise birthday party. 
Hurley, however, becomes panicked and runs away when he notices that the car's odometer displays the numbers. In Seoul, Korea, Sun visits her father and informs him that she used the money from her settlement with Oceanic to buy a controlling interest in his company because she blames him for the death of her husband, Jin. In the final flash forward, Jack eulogizes his deceased father, Christian. After the ceremony, Carol Littleton, Claire's mother, reveals to him that Claire is his half-sister. In the contemporary island story, following the events of Cabin Fever, Jack and Kate follow the tracking signal on the phone given to them by Frank, who dropped it into the survivor's beach from a helicopter. They encounter Sawyer, Aaron, and Miles. Kate returns to the beach with Miles and Aaron. Jack and Sawyer meet up with Petus at the helicopter, but decide to rescue Hurley, who is with Ben, the mercenary's target, before leaving for the freighter. Meanwhile, Saeed arrives at the beach on the freighter's Zodiac boat and informs the survivors that they must go to the freighter as soon as possible, because the mercenary's second objective is to kill everyone on the island. He and Kate go after Jack and Sawyer, but they are captured by Richard Alpert and the rest of the others. After unsuccessfully attempting to convince his crush, Charlotte, to leave the island, Daniel starts ferrying people to the freighter. Jin, Sun, and Aaron arrive on the boat, only to discover a bomb, consisting of a large amount of C4 explosives. Meanwhile, in their quest to move the island, Ben, Locke, and Hurley arrive at the Dharma Initiative Orchid Station, which is disguised as a greenhouse. Ben sends Locke for the real part of the station and surrenders himself to Martin Kimi and the other mercenaries from the Kahana, who had previously arrived. The final montage shows the Oceanic Six and Ben in their respective predicaments. So with that, let's now get to my thoughts about this episode. Certainly a, a darn good episode. Uh, like many of these episodes, uh, when you have a finale, it, it is a lot on action. It's uh, a certain degree of answers. Certainly you don't get a ton in this episode. But uh, a fun episode nonetheless, which starts uh, off with a tidy recap. And then we have a shot uh, that starts with uh, a picture of the blue sky. Certainly ironic, if not downright iconic, of the, uh, the first flashback, Jack on 815. Uh, it's a similarly presented shot, the camera coming back, not out of the sky, but from the view of the sky, dollying back to reveal... Uh, the scene. This time we're also in a plane, although uh, uh, for this episode we're in the cockpit. It almost seems out of time. Is this a flashback? Is this a flash forward? I'm certainly sure that that is meant, uh, you know, meant to be by way of the producers, etc. Uh, once Miss Decker is asked to go check on the cargo, uh, we start to get a sense of, uh, well, of what that cargo could be. And of course, Miss Decker is played by Michelle Forbes. Uh, so I think that we know not to trust her, given that basically every role that she's ever played, uh, Star Trek, True Blood, Battlestar Galactica, she's ultimately an uh, untrustworthy person. Not that she ever really lives up to that and lost, but somehow we still don't trust her. Uh, something that I'll talk about more in just a moment. But anyhow, she goes to check on this cargo, and it's a wonderful reveal when she tells the cargo that they're landing. The camera shows us a silent jack. And Hurley and Kate and Saeed and Son and Aaron, the adults all looking kind of stony-faced. And, uh, you know, as they as they listen to Miss Decker, she certainly is exuding the sort of corporate nonsense that someone should in her position. 
She mentions the branding, the unfortunate branding of the Oceanic Six. And Jack rather forbiddingly mentions uh, the game plan, this being once, uh, once she's out of earshot. Stick to the story, don't talk about the things you can't talk about, and act like you're in shock. Sun points out that indeed they are in shock. With that, Giacchino takes over. It's the homecoming that we always thought would end the series, and here we are closer to the middle than not. Uh, his music also rightly captures the central rot to it all, the lie and those left behind. That door comes down, finally letting them escape their island journey, albeit for uh, for the meanwhile. It's a nice bit of casting in the in the secondary department, if you will. We see Hurley's family, Son's family, Jack's mother. Uh, Said initially does not have anyone. He's brought into the bunch, though, welcomed uh, into at least meeting Hurley's family. I think there's the the vague implication that Said, not in a in a real sense, is being asked to join. Uh, Hurley's family. It's kind of the sense of Hurley feels such a kinship to him that, you know, let me bring you into into knowing my family. Uh, but sure enough, there's no one there for one person. Is of course, Kate. Uh, she looks around. Surely she must have on her mind uh, what, uh, what uh, gets described by Miss Decker uh, later as her legal predicament. That must be on her mind, but no one's there for her. Absent mother, let's not forget. Dead uh, father, stepfather. Um, but what does Kate do as she looks around? She kisses Aaron in a way that might seem lovely, if not for just a certain quiet desperation to it all. It's yet again an opportunity for the show to make us dislike Kate. Um, yes, she's clutching her baby, but a baby gotten, you know, ill gotten, and somebody whose future certainly is not clear. But anyhow, with that, the story moves on. It uh, resumes on the island with Jack and company wondering what to do with the dropped phone that we saw at the end of uh, Cabin Fever. Uh, their eavesdropping on the chopper reveals Kimi firing orders about the orchid. Uh, with that, the teaser act ends with Daniel half deciphering the meaning of the orchid and mentioning the secondary protocol that they have to get off the island. Maybe not the best title, or the best uh, hook in the world, but still not too bad. Uh, with that, we get the title card. Then Jack and Kate searching for the chopper. There's a quick mention of Jack either bleeding or his body exuding the blood in some sort of healthy way. Um, nice little line too from Kate. I don't have written down, but she says uh, something like, "When people, when when most people lie, they don't look you in the eye. You have the opposite habit." So. Um, certainly the 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 taxing uh adventure on jack and his uh appendectomy wound also a reminder of course of his wound uh in season six and the flash forwards anyhow jack and kate meet with uh, miles and sawyer and aaron uh where they exchange information new otherton has been blown up chopper baddies are baddies uh kind of some you know some season finale exposition 
Uh, as a side note, I'll just mention, Jack's hair looks especially dark in this scene. I'm not quite sure why or how, if it's intentional, if it's lighting, if it's just gotten wet by some passing Hawaii shower. Um, you know, I mean, certainly he's not somebody who's salt and pepper, but, uh, you know, by the end of the series, there's some some flecks of gray in there. And uh, here, here he seems like a younger man. Again, not, I don't know what that is. Is that a hint? Is that... Uh, a poor costuming moment did he or, or makeup moment rather hair and makeup moment i don't know but anyhow with jack going off to go uh, go toward the fight there's a nice capper to the scene sawyer following saying you don't get to die alone really kind of chuckle worthy anyhow with that we flash forward to the press conference for the oceanic six uh it's an interesting bit of lies told with gritted teeth and dishonest faces uh, it's fun to watch, uh, albeit a bit procedural. It's laying out the flash-forward lies that we've seen previously. Um, of course, seen previously in the future of the show, but no doubt you can you can follow along with that logic at this point. Um, so again, it's the function of setting up the basic lie, uh, the edges of which we've been seeing all season. But But it's fun nonetheless to see that kind of sketched out the first time. Uh, then right after the press conference, it, it's almost a curious little story moment. The Saeed storyline gets a little juice. Decker tells Saeed that Nadia is outside. It's a short scene with little dialogue, but it's sold extremely well. It, it's almost a catch-22. I don't know that much is benefited from this. Uh, I mean, yes, it's the reunion of Saeed and Nadia, which they want to puff up a bit so that her death that we learned about uh, a few episodes ago that we will see in episodes to come that it has more meaning it's also a bit of a necessary function you know of course she wouldn't be on the friends and family list he thinks she's dead uh or or he's he's certainly is unsure of her of her status uh i guess he he knows that she's not dead right because he was in australia to uh to get the flight to los angeles so Anyhow, a bit of a function where, of course, she's not going to be there to see him. Plus, they kind of want to milk it so that her previously revealed yet-to-come death uh, has a bit more punch. Anyhow, um, that scene certainly is well done. Very little dialogue, but the show places the story on the backs of the actors, and they handle it so, so well. With that, we cut to the island, and not just any moment in the island. We go from flash-forward Saeed to island Saeed, arriving in the Zodiac boat, ready to ferry people off the island. Uh, with that, uh, we have time for some tidy exposition. He must get people off the island, because the man on the helicopter will kill everyone. By the way, as a side note, I see I must have... Uh, I don't know if this is an autocorrect thing, or I mistyped, but my notes say... Said must get people off the island because the man on the helicopter will kiss everyone. I certainly can assure you, listeners, that Kimi's intention was not to kiss everyone. Uh, anyhow, um, in case you aren't sure at this point where everyone is regarding the whole, you know, man on the helicopter wants to kill everyone, Juliet says, but Kate and Jack are going towards him. This, of course, is enough tension to get us to the end of the act. Act break, then more exposition, just to keep us clear, or confused, or both. So when is someone going to tell me where we're going? We're going to a place called the Orchid, Hugo. And what's that? It's a greenhouse. 
And why are we going to a greenhouse exactly? You heard John, we're going to move the island. Right. And how are we going to do that? Very carefully. Well, if you can move the island whenever you want it, why don't you just move it before the cycles with guns got here? Because doing it is both dangerous and unpredictable. It's a measure of last resort. Awesome. There's this wonderful irony that all of that is true. The orchid is a greenhouse, and it's also the place to move the island. You, of course, shouldn't be that surprised. Isn't that what uh, Ben does all the time? He tells you uh, the truth, <laughs> even when uh, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, or the truth wrapped in lies, and it's more truth than you think, that sort of thing. Anyhow, uh, what unfolds next is a nice little bit of story. Ben turning over the fake rock to reveal an emergency kit uh, that contains 15-year-old saltines, binoculars, and a mirror. He uses the mirror to flash Moore's code to someone on a hill where they talk about something. More on that in the trivia section. Uh, it, it feels confoundingly confusing uh, for first-time viewers. I'm sure certainly that's uh, that's meant to be the, the dramatic uh, imperative of it, where you're saying, what is going on exactly? Um, they also do, of course, add the laughs. Hurley going straight for the crackers. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Hey, you know, it's the first part of a three-hour finale. If we aren't setting up the rest of the finale, then, of course, we're setting up next season. Anyhow, with that, the story heads back to the beach, where we almost have the Oceanic Six coming together, for a moment anyway. Sun on the Zodiac boat, Saeed there with Jack and Kate, but then Aaron is given to Sun, and Jack and Kate and Saeed are off in the other direction. It's a wonderful little chess game that this episode, and indeed the, the three finale episodes, play. Surely the Oceanic Six will get off the island before the finale is over, but how will all the pieces be put together? Just as they're about to come together, minus Hurley, now they're split up again. Really, really nice dramatic tension. It's lost at its best. It's being frustrating. You're you're ahead of the curve. You know that these six characters are going to get together somehow at some point. It seems reasonable that it will be this season because it's the season of the Oceanic Six. But uh, no, they don't do it now. Anyhow. Flash forward to pregnant son going to visit her father, clearly a new woman since her island adventures, something that is indeed foreshadowed in Papa Pike saying, it's just business you wouldn't understand, says that of course to her. The dialogue that comes next absolutely sings. I wish I could play it for you, but you probably speak as much Korean as I do. Son says, you must, uh, pardon me, Mr. Pike says, you must respect me. I am your father. Son's retort. Oceanic settlement was very generous. This morning I bought a controlling interest in your company. Now you must respect me. Uh, it all comes down to those mommy-daddy issues, doesn't it? And the capper, of course, is son saying that she'll give birth. Then they shall discuss the company. Our company. Wonderful, wonderful. To think that these were two characters, Sun and Jin, who were not part of the original plan for the show. That, uh... The uh, actress who plays Sun tried out for Kate. She wasn't a good fit. Uh, but they said, hey, Korean lady. Hey, wh how, what fun would it be if uh, we had these two people who were separated from the group by language? So anyhow, act break. Then Hurley comes back. Uh, we're in flashback. Hurley comes back to his mansion and 
uh, the, the beat-up car. He's got a bag of Mr. Clucks in his hand. They must, they must put something good in those Mr. Clucks. I wonder if he still owns Mr. Clucks at this point. They're kind of a bit mum, as certainly thus far in the episode. They're a bit mum as to the state of his fortune, uh, how much has passed to the parents because he's died, how much has been, I don't know, chopped off or sold to other investors and that sort of thing. But a Mr. Cluck's run was needed nonetheless. Um, the scene takes a creepy turn, an orange coconut on the floor, sounds of the whispers, a whispers, some whispers, and Hurley grabs a bronze Jesus to bang baddies over the head. How's that for your religious symbolism there? Uh, actually, you know, let's let's stick with that for a second. Here we have somebody who becomes, after the uh, the, the the real life or the, the 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 chronology of the show before everyone's dead, Hurley certainly became a uh, a Christ-like figure, someone that on the island was revered as special, just as Jacob is um a demigod uh, of sorts i can only imagine that was how hurley was was perceived at least by some in his flock uh and here he is ready to turn a bronze jesus into a weapon um i i doubt they're intending very very much other than hurley i you know if nothing else played for laughs you know the mother's own uh, uh great piety and hurley obviously a bit uh a bit less pious particularly after his his first go-round on the island, but a bit of a religious discussion thrown in there with our future island leader. Anyhow, it is, of course, not a threat at his house. It's a surprise birthday party for him, for Hurley. Uh, and, of course, the parents have ironically chosen an island theme. Hurley says a bit later that his parents just don't get it. It's a scene that it, perhaps it doesn't contribute a ton but it's wonderful nonetheless because it's nice to see everyone so darned happy. Kate with Aaron, the cute, albeit imperfect, couple of Saeed and Nadia. Even Hurley's father, complete with his bad-looking hair, is there all a smiles. And uh, he pulls Hurley aside to give him a birthday present that restored Camaro, now in perfect working order. We, of course, might remember the last time, or certainly the first time, that we saw that car in perfect working order, as Hurley was on the run in the beginning of the end, which, honest to goodness, does not feel like a mere 11 episodes ago. It's incredible to me, having done an episode a week for some time now, uh, and certainly having done this particular episode 11 weeks ago, amazing the the breadth of the series in, uh, in the Time between the beginning of the end and uh, there's no place like home part one anyhow the island story uh, moves on it follows Hurley uh, now with Locke and Ben as of course he was uh, my point just being that we've kind of had this uh, this gimmick of flash forward Saeed island Saeed flash forward Hurley island Hurley it's a nice little it's a nice way to do it um, with that, some sensible exposition follows. Hurley asks how moving the island helps, since it will also move the baddies. A fair point. Uh, once they're at the Orchid, there's more plain Jane exposition about Widmore coming to the Orchid as well. Uh, and are those baddies there? First Ben, then Locke spots them. The act ends answering the question, "Are where are they? They're already here. Bump, bump, bump. After the act break, 
we move from action to drama, the Zodiac boat getting its first survivors to the Kahana. The scene focuses on Sun and Jin, certainly bringing to the surface the question, how does one get off the island and the other does not? Uh, we are presuming Jin dead, by the way. Let's not forget that from the uh, from the Sun flash forward, Jin flashback episode. Um, so we're really, you know, insofar as we really like Jin at this point, um, there's, you know, we're, we're looking for where that break is going to come between the two of them uh, and their proximity to each other. Obviously, it's not this episode, but something else kind of added to the tension mix here. And you know what? While we're at it, speaking of tension, the tension is increased by Sun and Jin uh, wandering across that engine fixer. Who is it? It is, of course, Michael. That's not enough tension. The show adds even more. The boat's engines now fixed can take the boat in, but not while there's some unspecified interference. Hmm, curious and curiouser. Story moves to Jack and Sawyer, finding Lapidus handcuffed to the chopper. Uh, the episode continues its habit of, in the best sense possible, continuing to foul the lines of a straight story. They could just chop her out of there after uh, you know, removing... Uh, uh, Lapidus from the handcuffs, but Hurley is with Ben, who's about to presumably attack Kimi to the detriment of the, the Ben bunch. Not only do our characters want to get Hurley off the island, but we know that he must. Again, curiouser and curiouser. With that, we flash forward to one of the most wonderfully frustrating scenes, perhaps of this season, if not in, in many a season, uh, it's Christian's Wake, something that Jack certainly had intended to do many, many episodes ago. And uh, finally, Jack is able to get his moment to speak, but not without uh, a point after the speech of fate giving him a cruel, cruel slap. What I want to say is not for my father. It's for me. Goodbye, Dad. I loved you. I miss you. Thanks very much for coming. Sorry. Thanks for coming. Thanks. See you back at the house? Yeah. I love you, sweetheart. I love you, Mom. I'm so glad you're home. I'll see you soon. It's a scene that's quiet and beautiful and to the point, but it isn't over once that blonde Australian shows up. You did that well. Had a lot of practice. <clears throat> Excuse me, may I have a word with you? Mr. Shepard, I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank you. How did you know my father? I believe I'm the reason he was in Australia when he died. I'm sorry. I don't understand. Why would he have come to see you? Oh, he... He didn't come to see me. I was still in the hospital. I never saw him. He came to see his daughter. 
my daughter, Mr. Shepard. My father didn't have a daughter. Yes, he did. If you don't believe me, check his phone records. Would you like to know the strangest thing about all this, Mr. Shepard? My daughter was on your plane, too. She was on flight 815. You were in the air for six hours. Probably just a few rows from her. You never even knew she was your sister. She was one of the ones who died when your plane hit the water. Her name was Claire. I didn't mean to burden you with this, but you needed to know. I'm sorry for your loss. Your son is beautiful. Thank you. Now, granted, this is Claire's miraculous mom who's recovered from her coma, a bit hand of the writer there, but the more important story effect is that Jack's secret sister has now been revealed to him. It's evocative, almost, of Scrooge's spirit of Christmas yet to come with the bony finger of fate pointing out and saying, you. The capper, of course, is that it's Claire's mother who gravitates to her grandchild, commenting that, quote, Kate's baby, close quote, is beautiful. It's something that's meant to taste very, very bitter indeed. Welcome home. There's blood on your hands. The job is not finished. You should not feel proud or comfortable uh, in, in this return to the world. We have an act break. And Michael explaining how he got back to the outside world, uh, tiredly reiterating that he does not work for Ben, even though you might recall him being backed into a corner by Ben. And now, you know, in that scene and meet Kevin Johnson of him breaking down, I think it's safe to say he's working for Ben. He could have kept explaining himself and what fun that would have been, if not for Desmond calling him down below to discover a giant pile of C4 explosives apparently wired to blow. Tension indeed. With that, we cut to Kate and Saeed, figuring out that someone is uh, close to them. They're on the trail. With that, Richard appears, first alone, then the old other trick of completely surrounding their prey with guns. Not enough tension. Ben gives Locke a series of specific instructions on how to get into the real orchid, but what about the thing blocking them? Sorry, Ben, but maybe I missed the part where you explain what I'm supposed to do about the armed men inside. I'm going to take care of them. And how the hell are you going to do that? How many times do I have to tell you, John? I always have a plan. It's a great reiteration from Ben. He's always in control, even when he isn't, as he seems to be here. 
stand here in the peril of a finale. Even though this isn't the end, the peril of that finale starts to rear its head with the Giacchino montage, that brass lurking up from the swirling hopeful strings. We see Sun Dockside, Kate and Saeed and the others moving somewhere unknown to us at this point. For first time viewers, of course. And uh, we end up returning to Ben, now surrounded terribly by those big men with guns, men whose blood is on their hands and whose awful, uh, awful machinations we've seen thus far. And we indeed are kind of left wondering at this point, how is it that Ben is always in control, even when he isn't? out cold with the butt of that gun we're done with the episode what a fantastic end to that episode obviously as these three episodes were first presented part one was one week then i believe there was a 10 day two week break and then the two hour finale uh which of course i'll be podcasting as separate episodes as they are considered now but my goodness insofar as this is not the finale of the episode that it's it's the setup to that's it for lost until next january uh from that point of view what a great setup what a great setup um all the questions that it leaves you with i mean i know that there's there you know there there are answers to be had but you know i i speak as i often do from the point of view of uh of the first time viewer so that we can better understand uh the the dramatic construction of it but my goodness what an ending all those pieces moving and again with that overarching notion of how is it that the oceanic six are going to get off the island and we don't at this point even know how it is that they got off the island we just know the lie wonderful wonderful questions that the the next two hours will will start to address but we of course are not quite there yet let's take a look at lostpedia which has a bunch of goodies for us uh, they mentioned that Membata, the name of the island uh, that the Oceanic Six claims to live on, uh, is Indonesian for doubt or uncertainty. Uh, they also mentioned that a Geronimo Jackson record jacket can be seen near the DJ at Hurley's party. Uh, and as we see that record, a kid with number 42 on his jersey comes in and out of frame. Another child has a jersey with the number 23. I will admit I didn't catch that while watching it, but you know it's cute that they're doing it, certainly. Uh, they also mentioned that the mirror Ben uses is called a heliograph or signaling mirror. They were commonly used by military forces in the early half of the 20th century. They're still included in survival kits for emergency signaling to search and rescue aircraft. They typically have directions printed on the non-reflective side. They also say that at Hurley's surprise birthday party, Saeed is seen sporting a wedding band, implying that he and Nadia have been married by this point. Uh, back to Ben's mirror, uh, what can be seen of Ben's message interpreted in Morse code 
translates into seize, uh, S-E-I-S-E. -E. Uh, the reply was S-I-I, although there may have been another letter after, the, uh, after those while Locke was raising his binoculars. Uh, on the enhanced version of the episode, Jack revealed that Boone, Libby, and Charlie are the other three uh, that survived, uh, as in the cover story, uh, well, survived the crash and died on the island. These characters are the only characters to have appeared in uh, prominent visions of other characters after their demise, Boone appearing to Locke, Libby appearing to Michael, Charlie appearing to Hurley. And Lostpedia also notes that Boone, Libby, and Charlie were a major death in the first, second, and third seasons, respectively. And Boone, Libby, and Charlie were the final main character to die in those respective seasons. Sticking with that for a moment, apparently in the enhanced version, Jack's claims as to how Boone and Charlie died, internal injuries, and drowning, is, of course, actually how they died, although under different circumstances. Last from Lostpedia, they note that Veronica Hamill reprises her role as Margot Shepard from White Rabbit after a 75-episode absence. This is the longest such gap for any actor in the series. So, if you would like to share feedback about this or other episodes, the best way to do it is to say hello to me on Twitter, where I'm Looking Back Lost. Send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com or call the listener line 732-707-1815. Also mention that if you're listening to this uh, within a day or two of its release and you are going to New York Comic Con this weekend, I'll be there Friday, October 12th. And for most, if not all, of the day, and for uh, a good chunk of the day on uh, Saturday the 13th. So if you're there, say hello to me on Twitter. Maybe we could meet up, shake hands as fellow Losties, and, uh, I don't know, toast the series. Anyhow, next week, I'll be podcasting There's No Place Like Home Part 2. And, of course, the week after that, There's No Place Like Home Part 3. We'll bid adieu to Season 4 in just a couple weeks' time. So with that, thank you for listening. As always, it's always uh, just, just so much fun to get together, talk about Lost. Uh, each time I sit down, it's like, oh, I wish I'd already recorded this. It's usually last minute, such as this episode, which is going to be posting online in about six hours, seven hours. But uh, as soon as I dig in, it's always, uh, always so much fun. So with that, take care, everybody. Talk to you again next week for There's No Place Like Home Part 2. And bye-bye. Bye.